It could be argued that we own far less today than we did 10 years ago, even though we have spent the same amount of money on the same products and even more on brand new devices. For some, this is a point of deep anger, a reflection of how a capital-driven society has caused corporate greed to overstep its bounds, whilst others see our reduced sense of ownership as liberating, freeing the average consumer from the restrictions that come with the responsibility of owning anything. So today we're going to look and work through some of the arguments and ideologies at play which exist in a debate around ownership of media products, but also how it fits into a wider societal framework too. Salutations, listener. Welcome to season two, episode four of A Culture Made of Algorithms, a podcast that takes up our media consumption, the culture it produces, and the societies left behind. I'm Marlene, and I'd like to welcome you to the first video available version of the podcast. I'm here in this somewhat ridiculous outfit because it's kind of to hopefully remind you of how good you had it before Spotify allowed everyone, anybody to have a podcast or a vodcast, as they call it. Because unlike a Victorian child, some of us are to be heard and not seen. Now, jokes aside, this week's episode is about looking a little closer at ownership, about how we use audiences to fit in frameworks of differing rights and how these rights are overturned and have changed in as little as 10 years. Because 10 years ago, a vital piece of legislation was overturned and why as David Kravitz wrote an article that ended up opening a public debate about consumer rights. The article, which was topical at the time, details the writer's displeasure at the federal court decision to allow software companies to forbid the transfer or resell of their products, destroying what was previously understood as the first sale doctrine. And the first sale doctrine was a 1908 piece of legislation that built on the ideological foothold established by the Statue of Anne in 1710, which outlined that people could own copied works. Now, interestingly, the first sale doctrine outlined how ownership worked for the buyer and how a right of ownership could be transferred to new individuals legally. It means that buying a copy of a book from a previous reader is just as legal as buying it straight from the author themselves. And today we can see that play out in many forms, with car boot sales, charity shops, eBay trades and used tech shops like CEX all being legitimised in the eyes of the law. However, in each of these examples, I have highlighted physical objects being transferred without issue. Yet one thing we use far more today than we ever did in 1908 is software. And this distinction is important because software has frequently skirted around the principles of first sale doctrine. In fact, this is the issue that has become so prevalent that computer specialists are bound to make a YouTube video or forum post at some point which details the issues they have run into with a piece of software because they have upgraded or replaced a piece of hardware on their computer. But computer is not the only industry where first sale doctrine is being usurped. In our mobile phones and other smart devices, end-user licensing agreements or EULAs have made headlines for various reasons. For example, in 2012, Apple's iBook made headlines for having an e- a EULA, EULA, which prohibited an author from selling their book on any other store or platform if it was rejected by Apple for its store. In response, EULA's expert Dan Wyman called it a EULA with unprecedented audacity, making the agreement equivalent to that of Photoshop prohibiting you from selling the image you made to Getty or Microsoft claiming a percentage of your speaker fee if you use PowerPoint for your presentation. But not everyone was upset as Dan was about the move, with more casual users claiming that it was only natural that companies better protected their ever innovating products and software. 
After all, Apple was under threat from hackers and people who had found a way to jailbreak their devices, allowing them to use prohibited or yet to be approved apps. Eulers then, and especially like this one that Apple had released on its iBook in 2012, was just a way of protecting themselves as well as their consumers too. Critics at this point like to point out that this split consensus actually gave a cue to companies to pressure consumer rights a little bit more. And soon afterwards, companies began implementing policies that instructed users on the very specific ways to dispose of their devices, disincentivizing resales and upcycling. From there, we have arrived at our current dilemma, the restrictions on who and how a device you've purchased can be fixed. Colloquially called the right to repair bill, Pro-ownership tech activists are irate for us all because whilst opportunist iBook eulers affect content creators, being told you can't fix, dispose of or recycle a broken device you own affects all of us, every single user, regardless of whether or not we've paid for the price of the device upfront full or we're paying it down with a contract term. In fact, policies which disincentivize people from fixing broken products has become so lucrative for companies in smart technologies that non-tech industries have begun giving it a go-to. One such company is John Deere, I think that's how you pronounce it, a farming and agriculture manufacturer and another is Tesla, an automotive industry. In both cases, it has become so difficult to fix these products on your own or outside official channels that an insurance company is more likely to write off the product that still works but needs repair and instruct you to purchase a new one entirely. But what's the big deal here anyway? Most people don't buy secondhand phones, for example. Most people can't afford a Tesla, and approximately only 1% of the world's population are occupational farmers. Perhaps owning things then is so antiquated that we shouldn't do it anymore. I mean, owning is so 1700s, right? <laughs> but jokes aside, this attitude may be a reason why the growth of the as-a-service model has been so rapid and normalized, with the growth of Uber being just an idea in 2008 to a $31 billion company in 2020. Pioneered by the mobility as a service or mass model, these service models have relied on our collective disinterest in ownership to sell us products disguised as services that grant us the same outcome as if we had owned the thing in the first place. Take for instance Uber. Created in 2009, this service was designed to replace taking a town car, but has since gone on to replace minicabs and taxis too. Its popularity, ease of use and low cost is now so popular with users that Uber is being directly cited as a reason more and more young adults like myself do not feel the need to own a car. This attitude that I don't need to own it when I could just pay to use it has also changed the software space too. Previously we might have bought our licenses for products such as Microsoft Office but today we can pay rolling subscriptions to Microsoft 365 like it is World of Warcraft. Television, movies, and music industries have shifted to this model too, and with some success. Spotify, for instance, has 130 million active users and there are 183 million main accounts on Netflix. With this in mind then, it seems though many of us are happy to pay a subscription to access content rather than buy the content for our own use. However, the public going cold on the idea of ownership is not only a motivator for this trend towards the as-a-service model that can be attributed to the service model being more environmentally friendly. As Demos Helsinki, a social enterprise and think tank explains, a lot of us realise that the planet cannot survive with us consuming so much stuff. And when you stop to think about it, there is some credibility to this claim. I mean, is irreparable damage to the earth worth the cost of manufacturing a DVD? Environmentalism has also been a motivator for the modern minimalist movement. 
one which recognizes and relies more on the internet and its infrastructure to store, process and transfer digital information that was once previously physical. Want to look at some baby photos? Well, put down that photo album because it's in the cloud. In media systems more specifically, Netflix is arguably the biggest beneficiary of this social and ideological trend towards modernizing and minimizing. A conclusion I come to knowing that Netflix's previous competitor, Blockbuster, is nothing more than a bankrupt dodo now. And actually a sidetrack, I kind of miss Blockbuster. And if you don't remember what Blockbuster was, it was a video rental store that required you to rent a physical disc or tape. And then you had about 24 or 48 hours to return it. Uh, actually, the last store I saw was about in 2016 or 2017. You know, it was just a, a derelict store. It wasn't, it wasn't operation. It was just like the husk of the building that said Blockbuster on the side. And I think it was actually in King Standing in Birmingham. Um, I'm actually not too sure. That was, it was a few years ago now. And I remember like feeling sad that it was gone, but also like this joy of nostalgia when I saw the building. I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty wild. But anyway, back to the show. What benefits the as a service as a service model though is how it leverages ease of access for consumers so they can access a range of texts and experience a lifestyle that may have been previously be beyond their financial means. And we can see this in games as a service platforms such as Stadia, PlayStation Now, or Xbox's Games Pass. In each of these, you pay a small monthly fee and have access to thousands of games that have a financial value multitudes higher than the monthly subscription you're paying. The same can be said for housing in Airbnb's case a platform which allows users to rent homes for periods of time similar to that of a hotel stay. In return, the user is granted access to a home that is not only several magnitudes cheaper than it might cost to rent normally in that open market, but is typically in an area which offers an experience a hotel cannot match either. And proponents of the for a service model argue that by being free of the restrictions that come with ownership, we are encouraged to be more flexible in our lifestyles, living more freely. In fact, Demos Helsinki even accuses people who engage in a traditional forms of ownership as lazy, as we only use products because we own them, not because we have any use for them or want to. And to some extent, I can see this argument. How many times have we heard growing up, oh, you might as well put on a film on a random Saturday night when there wasn't anything good on TV. In my adult life, I recently moved and during the move, I had to downsize. And with me, I took seven DVDs. And in the year or so since moving, I've watched these films on Netflix. Okay. <laughs> and in this case, the as a service model has exposed my own laziness where I, I failed to use the products I purchased, making the environmental impact that was needed in order to manufacture those products a wasted effort. I also would have saved money too. The amount of money I spent on these DVDs at some point totaling definitely surpassed £30. I watched them on Netflix in one month on a single $5.99 subscription. Yeah, that basic one. I got the most basic version. Don't, don't watch me. Then there is the argument that the as-a-service model of consumption actually creates jobs and sustains service-based economies. For example, Airbnb has created a brand new sub-industry of hoteliers and tour guides and then boosted the local economy by generating income. Then, once guest leaves, the hiring of inspectors and cleaners is another economy-boosting act. Uber supporters make the same case too, arguing that people are able to leverage their current vehicles in a way that can either supplement their existing income or create an entirely new career for their drivers and riders, raising employment figures and the amount of total money in the economy. In digital services, the deadline of a product coming to an end means hiring more software engineers, designers, etc. other people involved in that design making process to make sure that the next update is bigger and better than the one before. But despite the environmental and conscious consumption impacts being mostly positive, 
economic benefit to the as a service model is continually contested. This is because while short-term benefits are easy to see, long-term users see users spending more than they might have done initially, with their quality of life seeming no noticeable improvement. For example, whilst Uber might have droves of new recruiters and a dispatch room full of lawyers making sure the company adheres to local laws, drivers are constantly campaigning for better pay. I mean, better as in actually matching minimum wage. And for a frequent user of the app, some report that they have spent so much on Uber in the past year that they could have invested in driving lessons and a car. And this economic debate is reapplied in the gaming spheres. For example, the cost of a new game is about £60. So if I purchased one brand new game each month, I would spend £720 per year on 12 new video games. In contrast, that PlayStation Now subscription for one year, which grants me access to thousands of games, would only cost me £108 in its most expensive form. However, if I play less than two games a year on PlayStation Now, then I'm actually making a loss. I'm also making a loss if I purchase less than two new games a year too. I've also not addressed that picking up used games are a way to lower costs, with borrowing a game from a friend being completely free. Plus, as it's something that I can actually sell, it can be considered an asset, meaning that if I sell the games I complete, I will lower my overall cost of the games per year too. Netflix is another one that catches me off guard. Because of the seven films I brought with me during the move, each of them were acquired over about six years. Also, of those seven films, six of them are part of a trilogy, so let's say I paid £30 for the three sets. I know I definitely didn't, but at £90, the cost of those three films would break even after one year in Netflix subscriptions. The catch here is that in order to watch these seven films in one month, I had already been a Netflix subscriber for eight years. That alone is a cost far higher than the seven films, and the value of money aspect is hard to quantify when you consider how many months where I didn't watch a single thing on the platform. This has led to an argument which claims that the as-a-service model is a way to monetize, after the point of sale, previously one-time payment behaviors. As such, over the course of your subscription, you would actually pay more for your privilege than you previously had. Now, whilst this is frustrating, especially for some more traditionalist consumers, one thing that has gone unchallenged by both sides of this argument is how access to capital determines who has control and thus ownership in the first place. And whilst there is a valid discussion about the role of political economy here, I'll skip over it to touch on the key point of that concept, that ownership and control are uniquely tied to who has the capital. It means that when we see a company like Uber being traded on the New York Stock Exchange and its former owner can offload $1.5 billion in stock, for personal profits that is, we are forced to question why its drivers aren't paid minimum wage and are forced to buy, lease and rent their own cars in order to get started on the platform. It means that you can begin to question if exploitation plays a necessary or even vital role in the model working, because it's not unique to the mobility as a service model. Because for every example of drivers being deliberately underpaid, there is a software engineer somewhere facing crunch doing unpaid overtime at unsociable hours to keep the platform working around the clock without excuses. And these are just regular people most of the time. But to have a company which is operating worldwide with thousands of recruited drivers and millions of employees, you need capital to do that. Which makes the model's reliance on exploitation feel more nefarious. Because even though these people are highly qualified, potentially degree-holding software engineers, or established drivers and various other people of value in society, they are still exploited at some sort of underclass, with their skill being leveraged by investors and fund managers who see this skill as a profit-making portfolio. But the exploitation of someone somewhere else is what makes the model so useful for the consumer in the first place. 
because we know that we don't have the millions to buy or sign distribution licenses for lucrative products or have the capital to build the infrastructure to house a national network of warehouses and servers. So we accept that it's a cost leveraged by someone else for our convenience, which is the other side of the exploitation coin. Companies which are impossibly priced for the average consumer cater to them so well that they push out competing products which, whilst may not be fit for purpose, temporarily protected them from price hiking. Which is what we're seeing with Uber, an impossibly priced service that benefits the people who can already afford a car to price out the taxis and minicabs which compete in the market, but a higher price point for the consumer. It is a nice app though. So let's recap on the consumptive practice of media in this episode, the culture it's produced and the society left behind. Now currently our consumptive practice is at a crossroad between individual ownership and collective usage. One which sees us trade the flexibility and leverage ownership grants us for convenience on a personal level. In this trade we have given up longer term financial benefits for a lower cost initial investment into these services. This trade has also meant we have traded out or outright given up on some of our rights that we once took for granted, namely the right to repair the things we've bought and the right to sell them on once we are finished. But as a culture, we still care about ownership, albeit when it comes with newer conditions. Can our ownership be sustainable, fair and fashionable though? Well, if it does, then it doesn't matter that we've given up on a society which valued ownership at any cost. Now that's it for this week's episode and for also this mini-series on ownership and music consumption. This week's poll questions, which you can find by following me on Twitter as at ACMOAPod, are Do you subscribe to any of the X as a service model platforms? Should people be allowed to fix the devices they purchase? Is believing that we own the things we buy an outdated way of looking at products? And lastly, do you prefer to buy, subscribe or borrow the products you use? Next week, we're going to be talking about the power of the consumer, consumer power, powerful consumption, and the key concepts around that and the ways they do and don't work or apply in 2020. After this episode, I welcome you to find me on Twitter as at ACMOAPod. The link to my Twitter will be in the episode description on the platform you're listening to. Also, like last season, your responses will be included in the season finale. So that would also apply if you, if you respond to the podcast questions by email to aculturemadeofalgorithms at gmail.com. And also, whichever platform you're listening on, um, I do welcome your reviews. It is vital to the feedback of the show. But until next week, where we talk about consumer power, make sure to keep consuming, reflecting on the culture and society you're leaving behind. Stay safe.